The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So Lorcan Lyon, Head of Training at the Communications Clinic is with us and also Ro McDermott, Film Editor with Hot Press and Advice Columnist with the Irish Times. And it seems, Ro, that every time we ask you to do the week trending, something happens with this British royal family, which allows you the opportunity to talk about it. And so there are two stories and we'll start with the second one. And to introduce it, we're going to play a clip from the trailer for a new Netflix docu-series about Meghan Markle and Harry Windsor. Uh, in which features a voiceover with a montage of black and white seemingly candid photos of the couple behind the scenes. Why did you want to make this documentary? sees what's happening behind closed doors. I had to do everything I could to protect my family. When the stakes are this high, doesn't it make more sense to hear our story from us? Okay, I thought the answer to the first question was going to be money. Uh, yes, look, even judging by the score, I'm guessing this is going to be kind of a manipulative, quite emotive documentary. However, I will say uh, I don't have a huge love of the monarchy, as I think I was expressed on this show very subtly oh, before. Not too subtly, uh, bro, not too subtly. <laughs> but I will say, I think Meghan and Harry are kind of a fascinating uh, offshoot of the family. And I think what's happened to them is really interesting. I think Harry choosing to leave this institution was an incredibly brave decision and I think the British tabloids in particular were so incredibly insidiously and explicitly racist towards Meghan Markle for uh, since Harry and Meghan started going out and the coverage was absolutely appalling and the way they used Meghan Markle as a scapegoat to deflect from other stories that were happening in the monarchy because they need the tabloids and the press in in Britain need to keep the monarchy on side in order to get stories in order to get PR Um, and so they used her as a scapegoat and they were completely happy to do so and the palace and the monarchy we're very happy to let that happen. So I think there will be an interesting story about what was going on behind closed doors. Unfortunately, very bad timing for Buckingham Palace because there has also been an incident. We'll get to that in yeah. a moment. There's another incident. But Lorcan Nine, I mean, in a strange way though, could Meghan Markle be protected from legitimate criticism on the basis that if you criticise her, you're allegedly racist? I'm still internally chuckling at the idea of Roe Ro as like some sort of unofficial royal correspondent for, for, for the <laughs> yeah. last word. Um, yeah, look, I think if you look at the trailer for that documentary and if you took all context and nobody knew who they were and you guess, what is that about? I don't think you would think it's a prince uh, who has just had to kind of move over to the States. It is, it is relatively dramatic. I also think no one sees what's behind closed doors it's kind of just privacy isn't it which they always say they want more privacy so look I think I think there's a valid enough criticism of why do you need to make a documentary like this from Harry and Meghan you have all the money you have you could devote your time to anything you wanted because you do not need any more money so and you've decided is it? it's Clearly score settling. You can see that from the trailer. Well, because um, apparently there's a picture of Kate Middleton in it as Looking well. very stern. Yeah. yeah so yeah. she's the contrast between the warm, empathetic Megan, isn't uh, it? I am sure now that they would blame the editors for, for that, Matt, rather than that's what they said in their story and that's just how it was cut. But that's 
quite clearly what the editors wanted us to see and read mm. into it. And I just, I don't understand how you can get to the point where you have all of the fame that you have, you have all of the money you have, you could devote your time to anything in the world that you wanted and you go to Netflix and say, will you pay me a lot of money to make a documentary where I'm supposed to expose my life once again and then give out that I don't have enough privacy. Like, again, and I'm, I'm like, these aren't people that I'm particularly interested in and not people that, you know, I wouldn't be rushing to watch the documentary. But I do think there is something important about saying if a woman, particularly a woman of colour, has had her narrative and her face and her family members, some of whom seem to be really, really awful and of sharing personal details about her without choosing that... And you can say she, you know, she married Prince Harry and she chose that. But no one chooses that level of scrutiny. No one chooses that level of media coverage and the tone of media coverage. And so I do understand if you're under that level of scrutiny, wanting to take some of your narrative back and tell your story from your side. And I think we can be very cynical about it. And then we can also look at it on a human level and say, if your life has been completely overtaken by really vicious, racist, misogynistic media stories about you, would you not want to express yourself and have some control over it? I think that's a kind of human impulse. I suspect as well there are some people saying, why are you talking about this? Who in Ireland cares? Well, the fact is, when they did the Oprah Winfrey interview, which was televised by RT2, I think it got the biggest audience that station got the year that Mm. interview was broadcast and many, many more views on the player as well. There was something over a million people, it's reckoned, in Ireland watched that interview. We're obsessed with them. We're absolutely obsessed. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to watch that documentary. Everybody, you know, is really, really interested in the in 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 the relationships between them and the relationships between the brothers. So, yeah, it's we like saying we don't like them, and then we watch them consistently and follow every element of what they do. Would we not prefer it to be in a drama form rather than watching it as a documentary? But I think that's the thing. I think what's kind of interesting and weirdly meta about the whole Harry and Maggie, Meghan and Harry thing is that we have seen this play out, but it's usually in like rom-coms. The idea of a prince falling for a normal girl. Like this is the princess diaries. It's the prince and me. She so, was a TV star in fairness from Suits. She wasn't somebody he met down in Asda. No, absolutely. But the idea of this institution and then this, you know, quote unquote, much more normal, relatable person and then the media coverage on the pressure of it like this is a narrative we've seen play out in pop culture in fictional ways so watching it happen but it also comes on the heels of these huge institutional changes tell us also about this other gaffe of the week yeah and I mean talk about institutional changes so of course you know with the Queen's death following uh, some conversations I had on air but also conversations that were happening there was this talk of look she was a huge figure in people's lives and they're mourning that but also does this mark a shift in what the monarchy means to people and the cultural norms around it and are we going to address kind of the history of colonisation and racism and oppression and what are the monarchy going to do now? What is their identity going to be now? And there were kind of some hopeful conversations some not so hopeful conversations about are they going to address this and change? And then there was an event, it was a reception on gender-based violence and um, Lady Susan Hussey who was the late Queen's lady-in-waiting made some extremely racist remarks to a guest, Ngozi Fulani, basically interrogating and saying, where are you from? No, where are you really from? I can tell you're not one of us. And this really hideous exchange also touching her hair, which as a person of colour, like I thought we were at the point where this is so well known that these are not questions you demand of people. These are not things you do to people of colour. And it's the idea that this is someone who literally hosts international events for Buckingham Palace, who was 
a really well-regarded person to the Queen who had the Queen's ear and she is so privileged and hasn't educated herself and is so casually racist and this is still the systemic type of institutional racism that exists and are they going to change or are they going to learn? So how's Prince William dealing with this, Larkin? Uh, Prince William, well, look, she has been sacked as 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 resigned, the, resigned, yeah. resigned uh, in effect. So he's been dealt with it, I suppose, to a degree. Uh, but they do seem to be very close as as families. And, and her daughter is now uh, Cam- um, Camilla's uh, lady in waiting or, or or companion. Uh, so look, uh, look, I think when you look when you look at this consistently, I, I don't I don't think we're surprised these people are so isolated from. And I think it's just exposing views that we probably have, have known that members of that circle probably already had. But I do think sometimes we can look over and you know we like to be up on our old high horse looking over. And and looking down at the monarchy. I think on this one specific issue, I'm not sure if people in Ireland can be that morally indignant about it, given the referendum we had in 2004, given the referendum that 80% of people... And just remind people, people what the decision was in that referendum. 80% of people in Ireland voted for a referendum that said that even if you were born in Ireland, you're not automatically an Irish citizen mm-hmm. unless one of your parents is an Irish citizen. So you can be born in Ireland mm-hmm. and not be an Irish citizen, which is exactly the issue that we're talking about here. Yep. 80% of people not that long ago voted for that here, and that's a stain on Ireland on our culture so I think it's a, it's we can't really look down our nose on this comment when on our legislation we officially say if you're born here does not make you Irish well you can be not born here and be automatically Irish And does that feed into perhaps a little bit of what's happening in the East Wall at present? Absolutely I think the East Wall process it's such a sad example to me of what happens when look the, Ireland is in so many crises right now we have the housing, housing crisis we have the cost of living crisis everybody is under a huge amount of stress we've come out of this mentality that I think we still aren't really addressing the psychological trauma of that. But when people are stressed and in a state of crisis, it's so easy for people with political agendas to come in and stoke up fear in order to in order to push their own agenda. I think that's exactly what's happening with the Easewell process, where a small group of people are tapping into ideas of xenophobia, of racism and saying, oh, no, we just care about the housing crisis. But then standing outside uh, buildings that are housing people who have run from really incredibly difficult, dangerous situations and saying, get out and you're not one of us. And I think particularly for people who've lived in uh, north inner city Dublin, which has always been culturally diverse. We look at Parnell Street, look at the amount of like restaurants and institutions, look at the schools in the north inner city Dublin that are incredibly diverse where these communities are gorgeous and lovely and have really welcomed people of different nationalities and ethnicities and then a small group of people have targeted this fear and played on it in order to present a really horrible protest and I think that's what we need to be mindful of how fear is stoked against really vulnerable people. Rose, absolutely right. It's clearly what has happened is people have come in and stoked the fear, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't condemn and criticise the fact that it worked and the absolutely. fact that people have let it be stoked and, and, yep. and let it happen. Um, because, I mean, it's disgraceful uh, what, what is happening there and the decision to protest, be it the, the centre itself or even blocking the tunnel because of this issue. It would be a disgrace in any country. It's a particular disgrace in Ireland, given our history. Yep. And I was reading a book about JFK relatively recently and a stat from it really jumped out at me, which was that in 1835, in one year, 37,000 Irish people moved to Boston in that one year. The population of Boston at that time was 114,000. So what, 25, 26% of the entire population automatically became Irish in one year. That's the history that we have. Now, Irish people were not necessarily very well treated when they went there and that's why we should be so much better than this. Mm -hmm. But I think people... 
and inconsistently because people don't like criticizing voters maybe they don't like criticizing individuals they don't like criticizing communities they're looking at the the far right they're looking at the people who are you know making this happen or stoking it up and that's absolutely fair but i think we have to condemn across the board this mm-hmm. should not be happening it's not because people are moving into the area it's nothing at all to do with an increase in population it's they don't like these people moving into the area and there should be no let off for anybody involved in any form of the protest and here's an interesting one Anyone but the English welcome in Ireland. My English husband has had numerous snide racist comments from Irish people, but I don't hear anyone in the media highlighting this. That's an interesting point. And you're not the first person I've heard say that. And maybe it is something we should discuss more at a later date. And we do have a difficulty, I think, Lorcan, isn't it? Particularly when we are described as being English or British, given the reaction to a New York Times TV highlight this week. We are, we are desperately, desperately insecure at times. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So it was a, a, a TV highlight of, of Bad Sisters. So Sharon uh, Horgan's um, a, Apple Apple program that you know rave reviews across the board. But it was described as starring five British a- actresses uh, by the New York Times. And obviously, when anybody who is Irish is described as British, we uh, lose our collective minds a little bit. Um, well, it's one of the actresses, Eva Birdsistel herself, actually tweeted saying, to, "Actually, no, I, I'm not speaking for the others, but I'm Irish." Yeah, absolutely. And I think. Like, I think it's very fair to, to correct it. I think it's something. I think it's slightly worse when uh, the British media do it because I think there's a feeling of you're just trying to claim that we're still party and we're actually involved. I think when it comes to the American media, I think really it's just they don't really care a huge amount about us and they kind of look over and think, hey, the English, Irish, here, all are kind of the same. No. I stood, I did a master's degree in San Francisco and I was like, generally such a wonderful educational experience. My lecturers were brilliant. I did have a lecturer turn around to me and be like, you, you're still part of the UK. And I was like, you're a professor. Um, but what I love about this story is that the New York Times printed this, called all the actresses British and then printed a correction saying an earlier version of this article described incorrectly the nationalities of five actresses and bad sisters. Three of them are Irish and two British. They are not all British, which still isn't correct. Correct. So Anne-Marie Duffy holds dual citizenship. She's Irish and English. And Sharon Horgan was born in London. But Sharon Horgan herself tweeted and said, I'm Irish. I was born in London. And the only people who call me British are my brothers when they're trying to wind me up. So or, that, or New York Times TV yeah. people, indeed. OK, interesting story, Larkin, out of the GAA. The Mayo Gaelic County Board wanted uh, the Gaelic football team to wear rainbow numbers in support of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, but they're not being allowed to do so. Why not? Yeah, so it was for National Football League. They wanted to do it and it was, it was due to their, to their charity partners, which is Mindspace Mayo. They're not being allowed to do it um, by the GA because the GA are saying that the jersey itself is sacrosanct, that you can do it with the laces, you can do you do it with an armband if, you, if you'd like, but that the jersey itself shouldn't be touched, it shouldn't be messed with. Now, it's not so sacrosanct that it can't have a corporate logo on it, but it's, it's too <laughs> sacrosanct to have a, a statement like that. I don't think this would be a, a big story if it wasn't for the backdrop of the World Cup and the armbands and that not happening. Because I think that's done something to politics and sports that hasn't been fully appreciated, which is now any single symbolic gesture by a sports person in terms of bands, laces, jersey, no matter what it is, is going to be seen as shallow because the first time it was ever actually challenged, that there was actually ever real pushback that if you do this, you'll have to take some form of punishment. Everybody just said, oh, well, that's fine. We wanted our stand, but actually it doesn't really mean a huge pile. So I thought that was actually a really, really big moment. And I think it is going to mean that... Sport has lost some of its political capital, some of its cultural capital, its ability to make these gestures, unless they start standing up and Mayo actually start saying, do you know what? No, we do want to do this. We said we want to do it. It wasn't just symbolic. 
there is a, a, a risk now that maybe you won't let us play the league, but this is what we want to do and kind of put it back to the GA. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think if the World Cup issue hadn't happened, that stand maybe wouldn't have been needed. But I do think now somebody at some stage is going to have to take some sort of stand and push it or else all of these gestures will just seem shallow. I always thought they weren't. Maybe I was naive mm-hmm. and they now seem very shallow. You see, the other thing about this row is that you know, I can understand why the GA wants to keep politics out, although you could say historically the GA was a political organisation when for a while it wouldn't allow, for example, uh, British Security Force members to play Gaelic games. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a 32 county organisation, which itself is political. But is it really political? Or is it more of a social comment to actually have these rainbow numbers? It's not a party political gesture. It's only playing in with something that actually is in keeping with the laws of the land. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting when organisations, institutions, brands even decide what is political and say, we're not going to bring politics into this. But we live in a country where LGBTQ people have been given a certain amount of rights. I think there are still ways to go in terms of eliminating homophobia, transphobia. Of course, there is always work to do. But by declaring that this is a political issue you're almost saying oh no this is divisive and we don't want to get involved when you could very clearly make a statement and say no we're not going to treat this like political issue this is a lovely thing to do Uh, we're expressing our values and the values of the country that we have voted for so let's go but I do think Lorcan is right in that I think Qatar has placed like I think the whole thing of Qatar players in Qatar would have gotten a yellow card if they had done so why didn't they all turn around and go okay we'll all take one we'll be on a level playing field and let's continue you play in. And so I think smaller teams now are feeling the brunt of that pressure, which I don't think is entirely fair, but I think it would be lovely for Mayo to push back on this. But I also think having, you know, a smaller symbol like the laces would be a good way of going. We are still living up to these values and we're going to have con- ongoing conversations about how we can do this and how everyone can be comfortable. Uh, this listener here says Galway United Football Club have rainbow numbers on their jerseys to support Galway being an all-inclusive city. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. I do love the word sacrosanct when it comes to the jerseys, though. That's such a big term. And exactly as Lorcan said, they don't feel it when it's brands and sponsorship. And I just don't think you can then come back and start saying that it, it's about it's necessarily about politics when you do as an organisation say you have values. You know, yes. and so I think if they're values, then they're values, regardless of politics, but, regardless of culture around them, they're values of your organisation and then you stand by them. So if they're saying the value of being non-political is above the, the value of being inclusive, that's fine. But, but the point also is well made about if you're willing to allow a corporate logo to be put across the front of a jersey, how can you then complain and say you're, the jersey should not allow rainbow numbers on the back of it. And are you promoting the values of that corporation and are you completely sure that their corporation acts ethically? Like, I don't think they're doing this intense background check. Okay, look, one other thing I want to ask you about. The baguette as a cultural icon? I think this is JFK. JFK once stood up at an assembly and said, Ich bin ein Berliner. And people lost their minds. This cultural moan of him saying, I am a Berliner. Except that's not what he said. Ich bin Berliner is I am a Berliner. Ich bin ein Berliner means I am a donut. And we have met our own JFK moment with this glorious young man looking her for his 15 (laughs) minutes of fame in the most Irish way possible, bursting onto a broadcast and declaring, Je suis un baguette. I thought it it was absolutely glorious. And I think it's a cultural moment. I think who amongst us has not taken a baguette and shoved some Irish sausages and rashers into it? I think we should embrace this. That's, that's not a baguette. That's a breakfast roll. It's a French roll. <laughs> it's a French roll. And we have made it our own. It's a moment of cultural unity. But UNESCO have declared this as some sort of cultural heritage. Yeah, absolutely. That The baguette is now, I think. The, sorry, the baguette, not the breakfast roll. <laughs> 
which is going to be my point, can Matt. Which is, I, I looked it up, and you go, and if you if you do the filter, you can do Ireland, you can do food, and it comes up with zero. We have nothing on their list. There is nothing. Not Ballymaloo. Not 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 Ballymaloo. No no black pudding of, of any shape mm. or form um, is on that list. So I think we are some campaign that we can start. But I think the baguette deserves to be there. Uh, there's a lot of. A lot of fancy things you could eat, eat in this world, but there's nothing better than bread, which Describe. is a very boring opinion, but it is my opinion. Bo- Des- bread is the best thing uh, <laughs> that you can eat. It's amazing. Baguettes were described as Emmanuel Macron, which again, I always want to say macaroon, so why isn't that on there as well? But he just said 250 grams of magic and perfection, which is glorious. That sounds like the voiceover of it. I can't believe it's not butter at. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ro McDermott and Lorcan Nine, for getting through so much there in the in the week trending. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from four thirty. Today, F-M.